Well, I'm grateful to be with you today, and uh, it's always an adventure when you go someplace new, but uh, God is good, and I'm grateful for the invitation. I think I was supposed to be here in January, and the weather just was not cooperating, so here we are in June, and I'm grateful that we were able to reschedule. And I will definitely be praying for you guys as you have um, the potential sale of the building coming up for your assembly and, and direction for what God would have you to do in the future. Um, I was contemplating what to share, and I tend to be the type of preacher that likes to preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, but when I come to a place for the first time, I really want to give people a background of who I am and what God has done in my life. And so that will be interspersed throughout today's message, but I do have um, the title of today's message is Paul's Principles of Perseverance. And I have drawn these principles from the book of Philippians. Philippians has become a favorite book of mine. I'll give you a brief background on why that is. I don't know if any of you have heard of the um, professional, former professional baseball pitcher Dave Dravecki, but in 1989, he developed cancer in his pitching arm, and he had his deltoid muscle removed and the tumor uh, that he was dealing with. And then he made an unprecedented comeback to the major leagues after that. He rehabbed. And you're not supposed to be able to pitch without your deltoid muscle, but he was able to. And of course, he glorified God in that. It wasn't a week later, though, that he broke his arm and they discovered that the cancer was back. So eventually he had to get his arm amputated and leave baseball. But after he left baseball, he began to travel around as a motivational speaker and share his testimony of God's grace in his life. And I had his baseball card and a couple of books that he had written, so I, I went to this banquet with my dad where he was the speaker, and afterwards we got in line, got in line for him to sign uh, memorabilia, and he signed both of my books and my baseball card, and on each of those, he put a Bible verse. And one of those Bible verses was in Philippians chapter 1. It was verses 20 to 21. And we will, we will get to that through the course of this message. But that Bible verse became the mission statement for my life. And so as a result of learning to love that Bible verse, I began to explore the book of Philippians as a whole and I began to realize that there's a lot of encouraging information there. And I've preached through the book of Philippians twice and um, done summary studies several times because I really resonate with the book of Philippians and the Apostle Paul in particular. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Philippians chapter 1. And to the gentlemen who are here today, one of the things I like to do is I have cross-references. And so when I come to a cross-reference, 
I will ask you to look it up, and whoever gets there first among the gentlemen can read it for us. I do this for two reasons. Number one, to keep you awake. And number two, because it just helps me not to have to turn in my Bible quite so much. So, again, the title of the message is Paul's Principles of Perseverance. And the first principle that Paul has for perseverance in the gospel is his passion for Christ. Everything that Paul did after his conversion on the road to Damascus was about his passion for Christ. If you remember, he talks about before he was saved, that what? He was zealous among the Pharisees. He had a zeal for God as he understood God. And so what God did, he didn't take away that zeal when Paul was converted. What he did, though, was he refined it. We were were singing in the breaking of bread about God refining us as gold. He wants to take the dross out of us, the sin out of us, and refine us and make us better. And that's what he did for Paul. He didn't remove the zeal. He changed the direction of the zeal. Because Paul remains zealous. And so in Philippians chapter 1 verse 20 we read, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, the context of this is that Paul is living, in, or Paul is staying in, in a jail in Philippi, and he's writing these words. Why are these words so important? Well, first of all, Paul is saying that my hope is that in everything I do, I I will not make God ashamed. And I will not be ashamed myself for my actions. And he's also saying that whether you put me in prison or whether you let me go free, I am still going to honor the Lord. I'm still going to proclaim the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we will be there later, so I will point it out again then, you will see that when Paul closes his letter, he says, the saints of Caesar's household greet you. So as he is preaching, as he is in jail, as he is... Um, as he actually, I have to I have to go back and, and restate something that I said because he wasn't in jail in Philippi. He was writing to the Philippians from jail in Rome. So in the final chapter of Philippians, he says, "The saints of Caesar's house will greet you." So while he's imprisoned in Rome, he's preaching the gospel the whole time. And the way they used to imprison people often in that time is that it wouldn't just be you sitting in a, in a cell by yourself, but rather often you would be chained to guards. Can you imagine being one of Paul's guards? And even though you're putting him in this, in this grotesque situation, in this harsh situation, which, by the way, our modern jails 
which I go to every month, are like the Ritz-Carlton compared to what Paul is going through right now. But can you imagine every day Paul gets up and he shares the gospel. And even if he's not actively sharing the gospel with him, he's writing words like this, he's dictating words like this as he's going through his day. And what did Paul say? He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a great way to live life. Because you see, when he's living, he's living for Christ. And if he dies, he'll be with Christ. It's the best win-win situation you'll ever find. We, we use that, that phrase a lot in popular culture, win-win. How everybody benefits from a particular scenario but never has it meant more than in this passage for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So the first principle of perseverance from Paul is his passion for Christ. If we can look at Romans 14, Romans 14, 7 to 9, if, um, if when you get there, if somebody could stand and read that for us, Romans 14, 7 to 9, that would be amazing. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Isn't it wonderful to know that whether we are alive or dead, we are the Lord's. Paul also wrote, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's never a time when we're not in the Lord's care. Again, he's reiterating this idea that we just talked about. If he lives, he's living under the Lord. If he dies, he's in the Lord's hand. Remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say get down off the cross and do some good works and then we'll talk. No, he simply said, you believe who I say I am, so today you will be with me in paradise. That's all it took. Because that is the God with whom we have to do. This is from G. Campbell Morgan. He says, There is a tale told of a great English actor, Mar Mar McReady. An eminent preacher once said to him, I wish you would explain to me something. Well, what is it? I don't know that I can explain anything to a preacher. What is the reason for the difference between you and me? You, you are appearing before crowds night after night with fiction. And the crowds come wherever you go. I am preaching the essential and unchangeable truth, and I'm not getting any crowds at all. McCready's answer was simple. This is quite simple. I can tell you the difference between us. 
I present my fiction as though it were truth. You present your truth as though it were fiction. So Paul is saying here, if we live to Christ, then people should know it. If Jesus Christ is the most important person in your life, then people should know that you've been with Jesus. What was it said of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4? They knew that they were unlearned men, and yet they marveled because they didn't speak as unlearned men, because they spoke as though they had been with Jesus. That's what I want people to think when they come in contact with me, that I have spent time with Jesus. That's why I'm a preacher, because I believe the things that are in this book. They're not popular things. We were just talking earlier about how some of the stuff that was read in Psalm 119 is, seems like it's just this year's headlines. Because the Bible says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God lasts forever. God doesn't mess around. There's a recent, and by recent I mean in the last five or ten years, I think, study that said something about certain liquors have the same poisonous effect as an adder, which is a well-known snake. And what does the Bible say? It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And it also says, it biteth like a snake and stingeth like an adder. The Bible doesn't mess around. I always chuckle whenever they come out with these government studies that show something. And then I said, well, I knew that a long time ago because the Bible said it thousands of years ago before you got up your government study. Bible doesn't mess around. Okay, so our first point is passion for Christ. Our second point, if you're taking notes, is the power of Christ. You know, it's not our power that allows us to do anything good. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Without Christ, I am an evil man. The Bible tells me that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The only way that my heart can do any good is by being redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because as he says in Ezekiel, I will take your heart of stone and I will put in its place a heart of flesh. And that's what he does for anyone who is regenerate by the Holy Spirit of God. So Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 spells it out for us. Reminds us as if anything that Paul said in chapter 1 was his doing. Remember his expectation and hope is I'm going to honor the Lord in everything, whether by life or by death. But how is that accomplished? Chapter 2 gives us the answer. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I started to think I'm a pretty good guy. 
And then God has to pull me out of myself and remind me that he's the one that does the work. In 2004, I was involved in a summer camp ministry. I had been for a couple years, and I was getting ready to leave for, at the time I thought, two weeks. It turned into three and a half to work at this camp, and I enjoyed it. I was excited. Every year it seemed like I got more and more responsibility. So what could be more fun than spending half the summer at camp? Well, I I was supposed to leave on Wednesday. And on Saturday, before that Wednesday, my chair started malfunctioning. To this day, they still don't know what, what was wrong with my chair. Nobody was able to fix it. I ended up having to get a new one several months later. But for that three and a half week period, with a few respites in between because my chair decided to work a little bit here and there, I was pushed around that camp. And my initial thought was, don't go to camp this year because you're supposed to be there on staff. You're supposed to be helping others. How can you help them if they're always helping you? But God taught me a valuable lesson that summer. He taught me the fact that learning to be served and humbling yourself in a way as to be served can sometimes be as important as serving. And one of my good friends that I met that summer said, thank you for allowing me to serve you. Thank you for allowing me to serve Jesus by serving you. And she's still a good friend to this day. Because of what I went through that summer. Now that wasn't in my plan, obviously, but it was in God's. Because God was saying to me, Andrew, I am in charge. I'm still going to use you, and I'm still going to bring good out of this, even though you are restricted from what you normally do. That was a big wake-up call for me. And even now, sometimes I need those wake-up calls. But God is good to provide them. Could we look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21? Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Who works in you? God works in you. We, we don't do the work. God does the work. He allows us to do work, but only through him. And it says in this passage that he makes us complete. Isn't that an exciting thought? 
See, when Adam and Eve were created, they were complete. They were perfect. They had they lacked nothing. And when Adam and Eve fell, what's the first thing they did? They hid. Because they realized they were naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? And then, he re- and then it was revealed that they ate of the fruit that God told them not to eat because the devil was cunning. And because even from the beginning of time, he hated mankind. He hates the image of God. That's why there's so many states in our culture right now that are doubling down and saying, we need to kill as many unborn children as we can. And we need to not even keep them alive if they survive abortion. We need to be allowed to kill them if they survive abortion. Why is that? Because the devil hates the image of God. Jesus said, the thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And I don't care how old you are. I don't care how many years you've been in church. It's not about that. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He died on the cross so that you, whether you're 2 or 92, can come to him. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise. He makes us complete. And without him, we are without power. Here's an illustration from God came near by Max Lucado. It says, one New Year's Day in the Tournament of Roses prayed, a beautiful float suddenly sputtered and quit. It was out of gas. The whole parade was held up until someone could get a can of gas. The amusing thing was that this float was represented by the Standard Oil Company. With its vast oil resources, its truck was out of gas. Often Christians neglect their spiritual maintenance, and though they are clothed with power, according to Luke 24, 49, they find themselves out of gas. This is convicting to me as well. (laughs) Sometimes busyness crowds in, and I can make excuses for not spending time in the word of God. Sometimes when I was in college particularly, I made the excuse, well, I'm taking Bible classes, so that can be my devotions today. But you know what? The days when I don't spend time in the word of God are a lot less productive than the ones when I do. And uh, I think it was Martin Luther who said that if I didn't spend at least four hours a day in prayer, I would never get anything done. What a convicting thing that is. But the point being is we have the resources, but do we use them? Kind of reminds me of the guy that bought a ticket on a cruise ship and he basically went to his cabin and he um, stayed there all day. He just had a little bit of food that he brought with him, like crackers and cheese, and he would just eat in his room, never came out, 
kind of came out like the the last day or so just to see how things were going and they said we haven't seen you in the dining room why why haven't you been in the dining room and he said i, I all i could do was afford this ticket and someone turned to him and said i wish you had asked because every meal was included in the price of your ticket the bible says that god gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. And all these things will be added unto you. We read elsewhere that he gives us all things richly to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy life. I, I don't think it's wrong to say he wants us to enjoy life here on earth. But we can only truly do it through the lens of him realizing that he is the giver of all gifts in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You know, I just turned 40 years old and I'm grateful for 10 years this year of preaching ministry through my ministry speaking for him. But there are still things I'm praying for. I'm, I'm still praying and I would ask that you would pray with me for a wife to share my ministry and possibly children in the future. I love kids and would love to have some of my own. Um, right now I work at Potter's House Christian School so I get to be around kids every day which I'm grateful for. One more week till summer break and they are truly antsy. They want to get out of school. They don't want to be there anymore which I don't blame them. But you can be praying for us this week as we finish, and hopefully we finish strong. That's what I have been admonishing them with, to finish strong like Paul did. But all that to say that God is good. And he gives us so much more often than we ever think about. We need to tap into the full extent of our resources so that we can see what God will truly do with those who are sold out to him. So our two points so far is passion for Christ, the power of Christ. Those are our first two points. Our third point is putting the past behind and pursuing the future. Putting the past behind and pursuing the future. If we could turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Not as though I have already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count myself not to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of Jesus Christ. Or Christ Jesus. So, you know, people may, think, may have thought of Paul as, as this great leader, and surely he was. But he was the first to admit that he was not perfect. 
And it really is encouraging to read these words. Not as though I had already attained. Paul is saying, I'm not in a place of perfection. I'm not in a place of um, that where, where I'm this perfect example of godliness. As a matter of fact, he said in Romans chapter 7, the good that I would do, I do not, and the bad things that I would not do, that I do. Because it was a lifetime struggle of two, two warring factions, the flesh and the spirit. But Paul is saying, I forget those things which are behind, and I reach forth toward the things which are before. I press toward the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. And there's another passage in this book of Philippians where he says, I want to lay hold of that for which he laid hold on me. That is why the motto of my ministry is speaking for him who spoke for me. Because at one time, when I was almost five years old, God reached down and through the power of his spirit said, Andrew, I want you for mine. Take me as your savior and I will guide and I will lead you. Now I will have to be honest with you and say that that wasn't the start of sunshine and rainbows. Because for the next nine years, I struggled with self-identity. I didn't want to be in a wheelchair. I knew that God didn't make mistakes, supposedly, but he must have made a major one because here I was sitting in this wheelchair. How could a God who was perfect, how could a God who didn't do anything by mistake put me in a wheelchair? And when I was 13, things came to a head because my little brother, John Michael, Went to bed for a nap around 7 a.m. after his morning feeding. And when he hadn't woken up by 1.30 or 2 o'clock, my mom went to check on him and he was dead. My dad later said it was like God sent an angel to him and said, come on, John, we're going home. And I was devastated. To this day, July 16th, 1992 is the absolute worst day of my entire life. I remember it in vivid color as if it was yesterday. But it was also a turning point. Because in the weeks that passed after that, I grew very despondent. I remember crying in my mom's arms and saying, why would God take John when he was perfectly healthy and leave me here in this disabled state, in this crippled body, when I'm absolutely and utterly useless? I said, I don't want to live anymore. I want to die. I just want to go to heaven. I don't have any use here. I don't want to die. And I even thought about going in front of a car and allowing it to hit me. But I thank God that he held on, that he never let go of me. Remember we said earlier, he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. 
He said, I've already claimed you as mine. I'm not leaving. And after that year, when I was 14, I went to a conference, and at that conference, they talked about 10 things that you can't change about yourself, like birth order, the time you were born in history, the number of siblings you have, things like that. But the one that resonated with me the most was the way you're made physically. And it was through that week that I was able to realize that God didn't make a mistake when he made me. That the psalm is true. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that my soul knows right well. And it was at that time that God said, Andrew, quit making excuses. Just like Moses in the Bible. Remember Moses? God said, Moses, go and free the people of Israel from Egypt with my help. And Moses said, send anybody else. And God said, who made your mouth? Have not I, the Lord? Go and I will tell you what to say. And he still wouldn't go. He still had the audacity to argue with God. And so God said, Aaron is coming to meet you. He will be, your, be to you as a prophet. You will be to him as God. You will tell him what to say and he will say it for you. Now, <clears throat> Moses and Aaron had a lot of friction along with Miriam through the years. So I, I kind of wonder if there would have been less of that if Moses had been more bold. But God provided and met Moses where he was. But see, the point that I was trying to get to is that God told me, go and I will tell you what to say. And it was at that time that I committed to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever I was given an opportunity. Now, have I always fulfilled that? No. I haven't. But God is faithful and continues to give me opportunities. And I'm glad that he gave me this opportunity here. And there will never be a time when I am in the pulpit when I don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's that important. It's the power. Paul said it's the power of God to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So, can we look by way of cross reference at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 to 27. If someone has that, they can read it for us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Okay, know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that, ye may, that you may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. 
So Paul is saying that when you're running this Christian race, we shouldn't run it half-heartedly. We should have our sneakers laced up, we should get our stretches done, and we should hit the road. Paul went all out. Remember, he went all out persecuting the church. He was standing at the stoning of Stephen. And he was zealous for that work. And then when God turned him around. Now, he went through a three-year period in the desert with Jesus, preparing him for formal ministry. But before that happened... Immediately upon his conversion, it says that he went into the synagogues and preached Christ. I think we have a mistaken idea that you have to have years and years of formal education to preach Christ. You don't. The Bible calls all of us as believers to do that. And nothing's more powerful than a personal story anyway. Because you can argue with these Bible verses all you want. But what you can't argue with is that I was one way before I was saved. And God changed me. You can't argue with that. Because there's evidence in my life of a change. People who know me before I surrendered to God will tell you about it. People who knew Paul before he changed, could tell about it. They could say, this is not the man that once persecuted us. As a matter of fact, Hishin was so great that what happened, he changed his name. He was Saul of Tarsus, and then he became Paul, the Apostle of Christ. Imagine having that great of a change that your name even changed because you didn't want to be associated with your formal life. A lot of times people from other countries, when they get saved, they do adopt Christian names. I think that's kind of where they get it. This idea of changing a name and moving forward in Christ. The Bible says in Revelation that we will have a name that no one knows except for him. So that day is coming for us. Warren Wearsby writes, Do not say, why are the former days better than these? You do not move ahead by constantly looking in a rearview mirror. The past is a rudder to guide you, not an anchor to drag you. We must learn from the past, but not live in the past. So, we all need to be of a mind to learn from our past, but not live there. We all have things that we regret, but as we've talked about, pushing forward to those things which are ahead and leaving the things which are behind, behind exactly where they belong. Okay, so our three points so far have been passion for Christ, <laughs> Philippians 1, 20 and 21. Power of Christ, Philippians 2, 13. Putting the past behind and pursuing the future, Philippians 3, 12 to 14. And finally, in Philippians chapter 4, we find the promises of God. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, 13 and 19.
Philippians 4, 6 says, Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes um, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then we read in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And in verse 19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So we see, first of all, we are to commit everything to God and he'll give us peace. So often, we're like the lady in the prayer meeting. She's really struggling in life. Why is kind of irrelevant, but she's talking to some of her friends and family about her struggle, and she's gone to doctors, I think, at this point, and really just struggled and not knowing what to do, and she said, have you prayed about it? Have you given it to God? And she said, prayer has it come to that? My friends, prayer is not a last resort. Prayer should be a first response. God gives us doctors with wisdom to help us through situations. He gives us other people in our lives with wisdom to help us through situations. But the first response, the one that leads us to the right doctor or the one that leads us to the right friend should be prayer. Even in Ephesians chapter 6, when it talks about the armor of God, it talks about the importance of prayer and the need to put our needs before the Lord. And then what happens when we pray? Verse 13 happens when we pray. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And how do we do all things? Because my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. So we give our problems to God and God allows us to do what we have to accomplish for him and then he supplies the resources to do it. God's calling will never lack God's resources. I've learned that in a big way in my personal life. Can we look at 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, very quickly. And then I'll finish with an excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. But first, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10.
it might depart from me. And he said to me, unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am I strong. I want you to notice something here, and that is, first of all, Paul says, Blessed I should be exalted above measure because of the abundance of revelations given to me. Remember, he spent three years in the desert with Jesus himself. And there are some trains of thought that say that he died when he was stoned and went to heaven and came back because he said, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I know not. And he talks about, I has not seen nor has ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love him. So if, if he did go to heaven, which I believe, he wasn't able to talk about it because it was too wonderful. But the point being here, that God, because of everything that he had given Paul, said, I'm going to give you this messenger of Satan to buffet you, to remind you to stay humble. And I've come to believe that that's why he put me in a wheelchair. To keep me humble, to keep me close to him, because whenever I try to run away from him, things happen like my battery dies or my wheelchair malfunctions, and then I'm not running anywhere, am I? So, then, he talks about after he asked three times for this to be removed, and God said no, what does he say? He says, you know, he says, so then I despise my infirmities and I hate them with all my heart. Hate them with a passion. No, he says, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. I glory in infirmities and reproaches. In the challenges of life. Because then, then the power of God rests on me in a strong way that it doesn't already. That is the God with whom we have to do. He's not always one that's going to take away the trial, but he will walk with you through the trial. In that hard year of my life, from 1992 to 1993, from 13 to 14, he never let go of me. That's why I don't believe in people who say you can lose your salvation, because, man, I lose my wallet. I lose other things. If I was a driver, I would lose my keys all the time because I'm human. If my salvation was up to me, I would lose it. But the Bible says, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for that. And now in closing, when Christian and Hopeful lay helpless, prisoners in Doubting Castle, the property of giant despair, Christian said, what fool I am. Thus to be in a stinking dungeon, when I may well walk at liberty, I have a key in my bosom called promise that, I, that will I am persuaded open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then he pulled it out of his bosom and began 
to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease, and Christian and Hopeful came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads to the castle yard, and with his key opened that door also. After that he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too, but that went desperately hard, yet the key did open it. Escaping from Bypath Meadow, they went over the stile, where they erected a pillar, this notice saying, Over the stile is the way to Downing Castle, which is kept by giant despair, who despises the king in the celestial country, and seeks to destroy his holy pilgrims. Then they sang, Out of the way we went, and then we found what it was to tread upon forbidden ground, and let them come, let them that come after have a care, lest they for trespassing his prisoners are whose castle doubting, and whose name despair. We have the promises of God. We have the promises of God that if we take anything to him in prayer, he will give us a peace that passes all understanding. We have the promise of God that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I, I think that we have to remember the context. I think it has to be all things that God calls us to do. I think sometimes we can be discouraged when we try to do the things that God doesn't call us to do. But then, when we do what he calls us to do, then he gives us the resources. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. I trust and pray that we are um, experiencing that today. But if you are not, and if you would like to talk about it, or if you need other prayers for a specific reason, just talk to me afterwards. I'm looking forward to having lunch with you all and uh, talking to you more. But let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for the word of God that is so rich. Uh, we thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for allowing us to grow up in a land where it is still, we are still free to read it. Lord, we, we see our freedoms eroding in society today, but we thank you for the freedom still to proclaim your word. And we pray that we as Paul would be willing to be counted as fools for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's better to be a fool for Christ than to be a fool without Christ. I pray that you would be with each of these people if they haven't trusted you, that they would trust you today. The work is done. Done is the work that saves. And we thank you for it. I pray that you would go with them, that you make your face shine upon them, and that you give them peace. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for the food.